Uh, speaking of God's word, if you would just open your Bibles now and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, we have the worship family reading for us verses 1 through 6. Would you please re- uh, stand for the reading of God's word? Hello, First Baptist Mansfield. Today we're going to be reading 1 Peter 4 through chapter 4, 1 through 6. Christ suffered in his body, so prepare yourselves to think the same way Christ did. Do this because whoever suffers in their body is finished with sin. As a result, they don't live the rest of their earthly life for evil human desires. Instead, they live to do what God wants. You have spent enough time in the past doing what ungodly people choose to do. You lived a wild life. You longed for evil things. You got drunk. You went to wild parties. You worship statues of gods, which the Lord hates. Ungodly people are surprised you no longer join them in what they do. They want you to join them in their wild and wasteful living, so they say bad things about you. But they will have to explain their actions to God. He is the judge of those who are dead and those who are alive. All right, church family, let's pray together. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for, uh, God, your goodness and your mercy and grace. We pray, Lord, now that as you speak to us through your word, that we would, be lis- we would listen, Lord, and that we would not just be hearers, but, God, that we would be doers of your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. You know, who you follow should shape what you expect in this life. The person or the persons you look as a model or example for your life should define the kind of expectations you're going to have about what your life is actually going to look like. One of my favorite stories from World War II is the story Stephen Ambrose made famous about Easy Company, which became known as the Band of Brothers. Uh, They were a paratrooper uh, organization that did multiple missions into the European theater. But as they went deeper into Europe, they lost a lot of troops. And those troops were replaced by new recruits who entered the war having spent zero time in combat. But it wasn't too long where they began to interact with their commanding officers and they learned some things. They learned that every commanding officer that they had had been injured. Every commanding officer they had had lost a brother or somebody who was close to them in battle. And every single one of them lived with the prospect of dying every single day because of the war. And so as these young recruits came in and looked at the people they were following, they began to learn what they should they themselves expect from life in the war. In a similar way, you and I are following Jesus And as we follow him, there are certain things you and I should grow to expect about what our lives are going to look like as followers of Christ. First Peter is a guide written to pilgrims, written to people that did not fit into Roman culture, that were ostracized, that were maligned, and they were suffering. And he writes this entire section in chapter four in part to tell them why they're suffering. 
Because one of the main reasons that they are suffering and enduring hardship is because they're following someone who himself suffered and endured hardship. And if you're taking notes or you're typing notes online or in person, this is the idea that I really want you to seek your teeth into this morning. Because you're following a suffering savior, expect to suffer. Because you're following a king who was maligned, misrepresented, attacked, who even went to the cruel cross for our redemption, because you're following that king, adjust your expectations in your life about what your life is gonna look like. The reason I really want you to dial in with me this morning is because if you're not clear on what it means to follow Jesus, if you're not crystal clear on what your expectations should be as you follow hard after the suffering Savior, you can become disillusioned with following Jesus. You can be surprised by what you encounter. And if you're not careful, that surprise, that disillusionment can lead you to follow the wrong person. I wanna show you two expectations you and I should have as we follow Jesus today. Because we're following a suffering savior, number one, we should expect self-denial. Number one, we should expect to deny ourselves. Now, this is an idea that is contrary (laughs) to American thinking. American thinking, when you hear self-denial, that's a foreign idea. Most of us think about self-actualization or self-fulfillment or self-gratification. But actually what the Bible calls us to as followers of Jesus is to deny ourselves But here's the trick, and I wanna show you this in this first section. Self-denial shouldn't be viewed as a negative thing, but as a positive. And so because that's the case, Peter starts by calling us to change our mindset, to adopt a particular way of thinking and looking at the world. Look at what he says in verse one. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, translation, since you're following a suffering savior, Notice what he says, arm yourselves with the same understanding because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. That phrase, arm yourselves, is the picture of somebody equipping themselves for battle. Somebody preparing for war in the same way that a Marine or a Navy SEAL would put on goggles or a night vision set of goggles to see and to to engage in battle. Peter says there's a kind of perspective, there's a kind of vision, an outlook that we're to have about life. And specifically here, he says, we're to see ourselves, notice what he said in verse one, as one who suffers in the flesh. In other words, that part of coming to know Jesus is recognizing that Jesus gives us a new identity. He gives us a new sense of personhood, a new sense of purpose in life. And this new life he gives us, he says, is to be characterized by someone who is finished with sin. Paul talked about this same idea when he talked about being a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, new things have come. And what 
Peter's emphasizing when he says you're finished with sin is that you and I should adopt a perspective, a way of seeing the world that recognizes that we're not, Jesus doesn't mean when he comes into our lives, he doesn't become just something we tack on to our lives. Jesus doesn't become something I just try to cram into another spot in my life as I continue to pursue my own goals. No, when I come to know Jesus, I end one way of living and I start a new way of living. When you got married, if you're married, you ended your connection, direct connection to your families. You're no longer an extension of the two families you've come from. You're now a new thing when you come together as husband and wife. That's why the Bible calls you one flesh. In a similar way, when you come to Christ, you're not just an extension or an add-on to your old way of life. You're a new thing. Uh, One of the common phrases that's becoming commonplace in our culture today is this idea of burning the ships. I don't know how many of you have heard that song by King of Country that talks about burning the ships. It's on the radio a lot. But what you may not know is that that phrase, burn the ships, has its root back in ancient warfare. This guy named Sun Tzu, who wrote the book, Art of War, uh, said that when his generals were taking new territory by boat, that he would tell them to burn their ships so that they could not retreat. And if they burned the ships and could not retreat, the men would be properly motivated (laughs) to fight with fervor, right? What Peter's saying is that when we come to Christ, in a real sense, what we're doing is we're burning our ships. We're ending this old life. We're not turning around to it. We're not going back to the way we used to live. We're starting a brand new state of existence. That also reminds me of Frederick Douglass, the famous slave turned abolitionist who later in his life actually met with the family that had enslaved him. God had given him such grace and peace that he was actually able to, in a sense, reconcile with them, actually come to terms with some kind of relationship. I don't know if you'd call it a friendship, but there was a relationship that was established with the very people that enslaved him. Now, in a similar way, what you have to recognize is sin enslaves us. When we enter this world, we're enslaved to our sin. But different than Frederick Douglass, you and I don't go back and make peace with it. We don't go back and try to reconcile with it. We don't go back and try to work something out where I'm gonna live my life and still try to keep pieces of the way I used to live. I'm ending one way of life. I'm burning those ships and I'm entering into a brand new state of existence. Peter says, part of embracing a life of self-denial is recognizing that you are a new creation. You're finished with sin. But that life in verse one that he talked about is characterized in verse two by living for certain desires. Look in your Bible at verse two to see how he unpacks this. He says, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. Now on the one hand, he's got human desires. On the other hand, he's got God's desires. And what we need to recognize is that desire is a really big part of what it means to be a human. Every one of us are born with desires, with passions, with longings. And the reason you do the things that you do, the reason I make the decisions I make is because I want those things. I only do the things I want to do. 
the decisions I make, be it how fast I drive on the road, whether I eat that extra piece of cake, whether I speak that final word, trying to get the last word in an argument, all those things are happening because they're born out of desires. We have passions, we have longings. I remember when Seth sitting here in the second row was in preschool at Southcliffe Baptist Church and as new parents, he was our firstborn. We were a little worried about how it was going because he's a pretty passionate guy. And we talked to his teacher. We said, so how's Seth doing? Is he being nice to other kids? Is he being sweet? And she said, oh, he's a wonderful little boy. We love having him. We're like, okay, but really, how's he doing? Is he, is he getting along? Is it going okay? And she said, oh, he's very passionate. And I don't know, parents, you've ever had those moments where somebody says something and you go, that's it. That's my kid. But that was a defining moment for how we viewed um, my son because he is a passionate guy. He has desires. And all of us know people like that that just live their life kind of with a zeal and zest for life. They're passionate. But what I want you to recognize is no matter what your barometer or what your temperature is on how excited or energetic you are, all of you have desires. All of you have passions that are driving what you do. Now, here's the trick. When you entered this world, when you were born, you were born with a set of desires for yourself. These desires push you, pull you to worship you. That's why you don't have to teach kids to lie or manipulate or steal. It's why those things are rampant in our world. It's not because of systems that have taken good people and made them bad. No, inherently, we have these desires that pull us to worship ourselves. When you come to know Jesus, when you repent of your sin and trust Christ, he gives you his spirit and a new set of desires. And so what begins to happen is the spirit is pulling you to holiness and humility and service of God and others. Your sinful desires are pulling you to worship yourself. And what Peter's saying is, don't live for yourself. Don't worship yourself. Don't give in to this pull just for your own pleasure. Instead, surrender to God's desires for your life. Self-denial then means I'm not giving in to my sinful desires for myself. Instead, I'm surrendering moment by moment, day by day to God's desires. Let me give you an example. Let's use your words. Kids in the room, when your parents tell you to do something that you don't like, I'm sure none of you in this room have ever been disrespectful to your parents, but I've heard sometimes kids can be disrespectful. There's a moment in time when that desire crops up. When your parents ask you to do something you don't wanna do, and there's a moment when you're going, I really, really wanna talk back. I really wanna tell my parents how dumb I think this is and they are. And instead, what Peter's saying is if you're a believer, there's the spirit going, no, don't give in to that desire to sash your parents. Instead, give in to what God has called you to do, which is to recognize that he's put them in your life to help you, not to hurt you. And no, oh, by the way, when you turn about 33, your parents become geniuses. This is a real thing. 
It really happens. About 33.3, that, that third of your 33 year, just a light bulb comes on and they become the smartest people in the world. Maybe it's, maybe not a kid, maybe you're married and you're having a fight with your spouse. Maybe it's not a fight. Maybe it's just a vigorous discussion. Okay. You're having a vigorous discussion and you want to get that last word in just to kind of spike the ball and prove that you're right. Anybody ever been there? Don't look at me that way now, okay? You gotta, gotta give me something. I know I'm not the only one. Those of you online, I know you're in the same spot. And there's that moment where you're saying there's this sinful pull to want to say something snarky, to be ugly, to be mean, to get the last word. And instead what the Spirit's calling you to do is to serve your spouse, to let your words edify and build up Sometimes the Spirit's calling you to close your mouth, not say anything. What Peter's saying is in those moment by moment situations with your words, for example, that we're denying our desires to want to get that last word, to want to sass our parents and be disrespectful and instead calling us to holiness and humility before the Lord. Here's the point. This is what I want you to write down if you're taking notes, okay? Self-denial is the path to true freedom. Self-denial is the path to real and lasting freedom in your life. Now, we just need to study that statement for a moment because on the surface, it looks backwards, right? Wait a minute. Self-denial means I'm missing out. Self-denial means I'm losing out on getting to experience that thrilling feeling when I get the last word or when I talk back to my parents and I stand up for myself. Does self-denial really lead me to freedom? Does it really dissatisfaction? The answer is yes. See, what our culture is built around is this idea that the more you serve yourself, the happier you're gonna be. Our culture The world, as it is, is built around this assumption that the more I worship me, the more I give into my desires, the more I give into myself, the more fulfilled I'm going to be. But the problem is, if you look at the landscape of our world, the experiences of people in the world actually confirms what the Bible teaches about this. The more people get, the less satisfied they actually are. I don't know if you guys have ever heard the name Howard Hughes. He was a famous movie director, pilot. There have been movies made about him, contemporary movies. He was a millionaire. He was somebody who dated movie stars. He was the talk of the town. He was the person everyone in America wanted to be like. But halfway through his life, he had a mental breakdown. He began to lock himself in a room watching his own movies for hours on end, binging on alcohol and drugs. And he was a shell of the person he was formerly. And one of the things that you can observe about his life and about so many others that get everything they think this world can offer us is unlimited freedom actually breeds discontentment, not fulfillment. Unlimited freedom, getting to do as much as you want, however you want, doesn't breed fulfillment. It actually breeds discontentment. It's why he mentioned that list in verse three. Did you notice it in verse three? 
For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. He says, listen, this unrestrained behavior actually destroys you. You give yourself over to what the culture around is doing and it actually doesn't make you happy. It actually builds unfulfillment in your life because here's what happens. When you give yourself to pleasure, you put yourself on a treadmill that never ends. Because as soon as you get to one accomplishment, guess what? It's a mirage. It doesn't fulfill you, it doesn't say you. You've gotta run to the next one and the next one and the next one, the next experience, the next high, the next money, the next promotion, the next car, the next house. It's unending. Limitless freedom doesn't put you on the path to fulfillment. It puts you on a treadmill that will exhaust you. You ever seen a child that hasn't been disciplined? Sad, because if you don't teach a kid when they're little that authority is good and discipline is right, they never learn to control themselves. And so as they get older, they don't learn what self-control and self-discipline looks like. They never actually mature in life. Because what kids, any parent worth their salt knows, is what kids really need is boundaries. Now they scream and cry when you give it to them, right? When you give them discipline, when you give them boundaries and there's consequences for what they do, they cry and scream and push back against it. But what they need deep down is that kind of discipline and boundaries. Here's why. Because kids are not equipped to live like adults. They're not equipped to make all these decisions for themselves. They need those boundaries to protect them. Now watch this. In a similar way, adults also need boundaries and authority. God has set in our lives through self-denial. Let me tell you how I know that's true. What we're seeing in our culture right now is skyrocketing anxiety and panic attacks. Anxiety is overwhelming young adults and teenagers. You go to any college campus on this country, in this country and talk to the mental health professionals in those places and they will tell you that they're absolutely overwhelmed trying to help students deal with anxiety. Can I tell you why I think that's happening? It's because as we've increased autonomy in our world, as we've said, define your gender, define your sexuality, change the world, define who you're gonna be for yourself, we've saddled an entire generation with questions they're not equipped to answer. And so as you saddle humanity with questions about their personhood and who they're supposed to be, they don't have the resources to deal with those questions. And so what do they do? They become anxious. They're worried, they're afraid. And so what happens is they regress into an emotional state where everyone's a victim and it's no one's fault. It's not theirs. You have to blame somebody else. Does that sound familiar? As we've increased autonomy in our culture, anxiety has followed with it. Instead, what we have in Jesus, as some of the Bible says, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. You're following somebody who showed us that real humanity 
doesn't experience gratification and the glory of God through living for myself. It actually is experienced through denying myself. So let me ask you, do you see denying yourself as a negative thing or as a positive thing? Do you see repenting and turning from your sinful desires as something that's bringing loss in your life or is it bringing gain in your life? How about, how about in the area of food? Are you denying yourself? Is there an awareness in your life that you're to take care of the body God's given you because you've only got one? How about parenting? Are you teaching your kids to deny themselves? Or are you giving them everything they want, whenever they want it, however they want it? How about in church? Are we gathering together based on our preferences, what we want, the style of music I like, the way the preacher should dress, how the church should run, how the things should function? Or are we coming here to say, God, this is not about me, it's about you? How about retirement? Have we bought the American lie that the good life is getting to travel as much as you want, live however you want for your own self, for your own desires? Are we buying God's vision of humanity as dying to self so you can serve others? Real fulfillment doesn't come by living for you. Real fulfillment comes by dying to you. Because we're following Jesus, number one, we should expect self-denial. Number two, because we're following Jesus, we should also expect rejection. We should expect rejection. See, because these precious believers in this culture were not following the norms around them, and they were denying themselves, and they weren't joining in on that behavior, they faced persecution. Look at verse 4 says, They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living and they slander you. See, through your actions and your words, you're bearing witness to the light. And what Peter here is saying is the darkness hates the light. See, these people observed that these Christians weren't fitting in. They weren't following the norms of the day. They weren't following the cultural dictates of the moment. And because of that, they were sticking out. They weren't looking like the rest of the people around them. And their deeds, the deeds of the light, bear witness to the fact that the darkness is wrong. So they were being attacked. They were being maligned. They were being misrepresented. It's like wearing away team colors sitting in a home team section. You ever seen that on the, the big game where you, you see the crowd and you see this sea of green and there's this one person wearing red, right? They got their ticket wrong and they ended up in the wrong section and they're surrounded by the, the opposing team or there's a sea of red and there's that one lady cheering and screaming and jumping up and down wearing orange. There's a level of expectation you have if you're wearing a opposing team color sitting in your rival teams section. Peter's saying, listen, when you live your life for self-denial, you're wearing away team colors sitting in the home team section. You're going to stick out. 
you're gonna stand out. And oftentimes people are not gonna understand why you're doing what you're doing. Oftentimes our culture is going to malign and attack your position, your behavior, because they can't comprehend what you're doing. It's why conservative evangelical Christianity is constantly accused of bigotry today because of our beliefs about marriage. We believe marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman for life before God. And our culture looks at that and says, well, you're, you're keeping people from things. You're restrictive. You're, your morality is trying to hold people back from what they're really feeling led to do. And you guys just have this animus and this hatred for gay people. We don't hate anybody. In fact, we actually want to keep you from harming yourself. The reason we hold to the positions we hold to is not because we're trying to keep you from happiness. It's because we're trying to keep you from harm. When you abandon God's design, when you abandon God's plan for intimacy and for marriage, you invite harm and destruction into your life. We don't hate anybody. Yet, if you hold to those positions, don't be surprised when people misrepresent your position, when they accuse you of things that have never even once entered your heart or mind. Peter says, listen, this is going to happen. This kind of rejection is gonna take place. But remember as that happens, that while you may have humans who judge you, humans who evaluate wrongly your position, notice what verse five says. The ultimate judge, they will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. While we may have humans who judge us in this life, the ultimate judge is actually God. God's judgment is total. Every single person is going to stand before him. And there's a criterion God's going to use, which is his son, Jesus Christ. You see, the only way you and I can stand before God and be received into his presence as his friend and his child is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. There's no other way to walk into God's presence as his friend and his child apart from faith in Jesus. See, what we're doing when we place our faith and trust in Christ is we're believing that we are not supposed to be worshiped. These desires we've been born with, we're repudiating those. We're turning from those. And instead we're trusting Christ. We're trusting that he died in our place, that he took the punishment for us, that he rose again three days later to not just take our penalty, but defeat our penalty. See, because Jesus is alive today, if you trust him, he can free you. He can forgive you of your sin. If you're here today in this room or you're watching online and you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior, please understand there's a day that God has appointed for you to stand before him. And the only way you will stand before God as his friend and as his child is if you repent you deny yourself and you trust and follow Jesus. Peter says, listen, this reality is actually shown up in the experiences of people that this church, these churches had seen. In verse six, he talks about believers that had actually experienced this themselves. Notice what he says in verse six. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead 
so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. You see, what he's saying is that there were believers that had been persecuted, maybe even been martyred. We don't know for sure, but some of them may have even been killed for their faith. And though they had been judged by humans, the true, the ultimate judge had actually said, you're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. I'm going to give you the life that I promised you. Whereas the scripture says in other places, these people entered God's presence and heard, well done, good and faithful servant. You see what Paul, what Peter's saying, this is the point I want you to write down, is that our future approval has got to drown out present rejection. What Peter's saying is the future approval I have through Jesus, that in the end, God is going to vindicate me, going to declare me just and right, is meant to drown out all the noise around me that often tells me that I don't measure up, that I'm not good enough, that I'm wrong, that I'm backwards for what I believe. My future approval in Christ is meant to drown out the rejection I experience in this life because of Christ. My family, uh, big family, my family's big into music. My mom's a piano teacher. I actually minored in music in college. And um, one of the things that's interesting about music is that it's not, uh, there, you can get degrees in performance and education, of course, but there's also a discipline in the music world called music therapy. And music therapy is an evidence-based form of therapy that uses music to help people deal with trauma or grief or pain or brokenness in their lives. Music can also be used, uh, even it's been shown to help kids as they're getting an IV put in, that kids that have this music playing in the background actually are calmer and less prone to anxiety than kids that don't. It's, It's been shown to help people process grief and suffering and loss because when they hear music, it actually begins to activate different parts of their brain. Music therapy then is kind of built on this idea that music can help drown out the noise of the world around us. What Peter's saying as he closes this passage is that the music of God's grace, if we let it, can drown out all the anxiety and rejection we face in this life. If you and I press into the merciful grace of Jesus, and let that music permeate our mind and our hearts. It can crowd out, it can drown out the rejection that we often feel. So as we close our service this morning, I wanna actually do that today. I don't want you to wait to do that later this afternoon or next week. So as we close our service this morning, I'm actually gonna read from what I believe is one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible. Romans chapter eight. And as I read these words about the beautiful grace of the Lord Jesus, my prayer is gonna be that if you're finding yourself feeling rejected today, if you're finding yourself filled with anxiety, filled with discouragement, filled with pain, filled with brokenness, filled with confusion, that the words of the grace of Jesus Christ, the music of God's grace, would drown out all the noise in your life. Would you bow your heads with me, close your eyes, whether you're in person 
online. If you're online with us, we are so glad that you've been worshiping with us today. My prayer is that these words will speak life into you and drown out all the noise that we experience. Romans 8, 1 says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free, set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on the things of the spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. So then brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to live according to the flesh because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's spirit are God's sons. And you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan with ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope, we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that we would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring any accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, he has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate you from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, no powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, I pray that these words have washed over our minds and our hearts the beautiful music of your grace. God, I pray, I pray for these precious people here in this room, for families watching online, God, who are concerned, who are worried, who are discouraged, who are down. God, I pray that the music of your grace would drown out all the noise of this world. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've given us a song worth singing and music worth listening to. Thank you for your mercy and grace. Help us as we leave in a moment, not just to be hearers, but doers of your word. In Jesus' name we pray.